Welcome, welcome, welcome. I thank you so much for joining Rusty Moy, your host on this platform once again. I'm just so honored and grateful to be a part of something great. But most importantly, I'm just so honored and excited to see another day, another moment in the middle of a challenging pandemic. We're going into two years of this pandemic. But what I am excited about is our children. Most of them are in school and a lot of families and children are vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, please, 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 please get the children vaccinated and get yourself vaccinated. This virus is no joke. We want to make sure we protect ourselves. So nothing less. In episode one and this discussion, I want to discuss the Black progress meaning how far we've come and how far we have to go. So let's start with a few contrasting numbers and a little bit more right here in this episode. In my recent research, in 1940, 60% of employed Black women worked as domestic servants. And today, the number is down to 2.2%. So that means progress. But are we where we need to be? No. While 60% hold white-collar jobs. Okay, 44 and 1, in 1958, 44% of whites said they would move if a black family became their next door neighbor. Today, the figure is 1%, okay? 18 and 86, okay? In 1964, the year of the Great Civil Rights Act was passed. Only 8% of whites claimed to have a friend who was black. Today, 86% guys say they do, while 87% of black asserts they have white friends. Okay, so we are making progress, but is it enough? Progress, progress is a largely suppressed story of race and race relation over the past half century. And this is the news more than 40% of African Americans now consider themselves members of the middle class. 42% own their own homes, and a figure that rises to 75% if we look just at black married couples, black two-parent families earn only 13% less than those who are white. Almost a third of black population live in the suburbs. Okay, so what does that say? Well, because these are the facts that the media seldom report. So a lot of times when we're looking at the media or we're reading something, we might want to take and do our own research. The black underclass continues to define black American and the view of much of the public. Many assume that black individuals live in ghettos, often in high-rise public housing projects. Crime and the welfare checks are seen as their main source of income. The stereotype crosses racial lines. Blacks are even more prone than whites to aggravate at the extent to which African Americans are trapped in inner city poverty. Is that true? Is there not, not white Americans in poverty? Are there not in public housing? Isn't that equal? Well, I'm going to continue. In 1991, 
there was a poll about fifth of all whites, but almost half of black respondents said that at least three out of four African-Americans were impoverished urban residents. And yet, in reality, blacks who consider themselves to be middle class outnumber those with income below, below now, the poverty line by a wide margin. Okay, so I want to continue on. This gets a little bit more interesting. So a fifth year march out of poverty. 50 years ago, most blacks were indeed trapped in poverty, although they did not reside in inner cities. Okay. There was an American dilemma in 1944 of most blacks lived in the South and on the land as laborers and sharecroppers. Okay. Only one in eight owned the land in which he or she worked. What are we going to say he worked? A triple 5% of black men nationally were engaged in non-manual white-collared work of any kind. The vast majority held ill-paid, insecure, manual jobs, jobs that few whites would take. As already noted, 6 out of 10 African Americans were household servants who, driven by economic desperation, often worked 12-hour days for pathetically low wages. And segregation in the South and discrimination in the North did create a sheltered market for some black businesses, funeral homes, beauty parlors, and much, much more. But what I will say is that served a black community buried from patronizing white establishments. But the number was minus some, okay? So in my research, beginning in the 1940s, however... The deep demographic and economic change accompanied by a marked shift in white racial attitudes. And with those attitudes, it started blacks down the road to much greater equality, right? The New Deal of legislation, which set minimum wages and hours and eliminated the incentive of Southern employers to hire low-wage black workers, put a damper on further industrial development in the region, and to put icing on this, in addition, the trend towards mechanicalized articulture and diminished demand for American cotton in the face of international competition combined it to displace, displace blacks from the land. Consequently, with a shortage of workers in the northern manufactured plants following the outbreak of World War II, southern blacks in search of jobs boarded trains and buses in a great migration that lasted through the mid-1960s. They found what they were looking for, wages so strikingly high that in 1953, the average income for a black family in the north was almost twice that of those who remained in the south. Although much of the wages in the 1950s rose steadily and unemployment was low, okay? In the 1960s, only one out of seven black men still labored on the land, and almost a quarter were in white-collared or skilled manual occupations. Also, 24% had semi-skilled factory jobs that met memberships in the stable working class, while the proportion of black women working as servants had been cut in half, even though who did not move up into higher-ranking jobs were doing much, much better. So a decade later, the gains were even more striking. Striking From the 1940s to the 1970s, black men cut their income gap by about a third, 
And by the 1970s, there were earnings on an average. Roughly 60% of what white men took in and the advancement of black women was even more impressive. Black life expectancy expectations went up dramatically. Okay. Tongue twister. Sorry about that, guys. As did black home ownership rates. Black college enrollment also rose by the 1970s to about 10% of the total, three times of a figure. Okay. And subsequently, years, these trends continued, although at more leisurely pace. For instance, today, more than 30% of black men or nearly 60% of black women hold white collar jobs. Whereas in the 1970s, there was only 2.2% of American physicians were black. The figure is now 4.5%. But while the fraction of black families with middle class incomes rose about 40%, points between 1940s and the 1970s, it has inched up only another 10 points since then. Okay? So the the affirmative action doesn't work. The rapid change in the status of blacks were several decades followed by a defiant slowdown that began just when affirmative action policies get their start. Okay, this story certainly seems to suggest that racial preferences have enjoyed an inflated reputation and simply reasoning to support affirmative action. When an op-ed writer mentioned once through New York Times, it works. That is the voice of conventional wisdom. It works. But what works? And how does it work? In fact, not only did significant advances predate the affirmative action era, but the benefits of race, race conscious politics are not clear. Importantly, differences is a slower overall rate of economic growth, most notably separate from the pre-1970s and post-1970 periods, making the comparisons difficult. We know this is some gains and probably some attributably to a race consciousness, educational and employment policy. The number of black colleges and university professors are more than doubled between 1970s and 1990. The number of physicians tripled, the number of engineers almost quadrupled, and the number of attorneys increased more than sixfold. Those numbers undoubtedly do reflect the fact that the nation's professional schools change their admissions criteria for black applicants, accepting, often providing financial aid to African-American students whose academic records were much weaker than those of many white and Asian-American applicants whose these schools were turning down. The preferences worked from the beneficiaries and they were given a seat in these classrooms that they would not have won in the absence of the racial double standards. Okay, but on the flip of the coin, these professionals make up a small fraction of the total black middle class and their numbers would have grown without preferences. The historical record strongly suggests, in addition, the greatest economic gains for African-Americans since the early 1960s were in the years of 1965 to 1975 and occurred mainly in the South, as many may say, um, Virtually to no improvement in the wages of black men relatively to those of white men outside of the South over the entire period of 1963 to 1987. And the Southerns gained, they concluded, were 
mainly due to the powerful anti-discrimination provisions in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Okay, so while the respect of um, federal, state, and municipal state aside as well, the jury is still out. So in the 1994, the state of Maryland decided that at least 10% of the contracts it awarded would go to minorities and female-owned firms. It more than met its goal, and the program therefore worked if the goal was merely the narrow one of dispensing cash to the particular designated group. But how well do these sheltered businesses survive long-term without extraordinary protection from free market competition? And with almost 30% of Black families still living in poverty, what is a trickle-down effect? Well, on neither score is the picture of reassuring. Programs are often fraudulently with white contractors offering minority firms 15% of the profit with no obligation to do any of the work. Alternatively, Alternatively, uh, set aside the enriched with the right connection. Um, for instance, the main effect of the audience was a marriage of political convenience, a working allowance between the economically privileged and the both races. The white business elite signed onto a piece of paper of the pie for the blacks in order to polish its image as a social conscience and secure support for the downtime um Revelations it wanted. So black politicians use the bargains to just suggest their own importance to low income constitutes for whom the set aside actually did not little. Neither cared whether the policy in fact would really be an economic benefit, which it didn't. Okay? So with a short commercial break, I will be back discussing why has the engine of progress stalled. So don't go anywhere. This episode's going to get better, so stay tuned. To learn a little bit more about Rusty Moyes, interesting episodes, stay focused, stay informed, but most importantly, Follow a podcaster that's only going to give you creativity, honest feedback, and real-life issues. Welcome back, and thank you guys so much for joining me right here on this platform once again with episode one, How Far We've Come and How Far We Have to Go. And there's no lie in that. We as a whole have came so far. But there's so many other underlining issues that many African-Americans and Latino-Americans face today. And I want to discuss it right here and much, much more. So if you're just joining me, I'm going to continue on with why has the engine of progress stalled? Well, I will explain. In the decades since affirmative action policies were first instituted, the poverty rate has remained basically unchanged. Despite the black gains by numerous other measures, close to 30% of black families still live below the poverty level. And there are those who say, my fellow Americans, that even good affirmative action programs are no longer needed. I remember President Clinton saying during 1995, but let, let us consider 
He went on that the unemployment rate for African-Americans remained about twice as it is for whites. The racial preference are the present answers to persist inequality, although a quarterly century of affirmative action has done nothing wherever to close the unemployment gap. Okay. So persistent inequality is obviously serious. And if discrimination were the primary problem, then race constituents remedies might be appropriate. But while white racism was central to the story in 1964, today the picture is much more complicated. Though blacks and whites now graduate at the same rate from high school, today are almost equally like to attend college or an average, they're equally educated. That is looking at years of schooling, assuming the racial gap and family incomes tell us little about the co-initiative skills whites and blacks bring to the job market. And the co-initiative skills obviously affects earnings. So with the National Assessment of Educational Progress and the nation's report cards on what American students attending elementary and secondary schools know, those tests show that African-American students on an average are, are alarmingly far behind Whites in math, science, reading, and writing. For instance, black students at the end of their high school career are almost four years behind white students in the reading. The gap is comparable in the subjects as the study to 26 to 33-year-old men who held full-time jobs in 1991. This found that when education was measured by years of school completed, blacks earned 19% less than comparably educated whites. But when the word knowledge Paragraph and comprehension, arithmetic, reasoning, mathematical knowledge became the yardstick. The results were reversed. Black men earned 9% more than white men with the same education. That is the same performance on basic tests. So don't get anything mixed up or confused because these are the facts. Research suggests much the same point, for instance, the work of the economics has demonstrated the increasingly importance of co-initiative skills in our changing economy. Employers and, firm, and firms like Honda now require employers who can read and do math problems at the ninth grade level at a minimum. And yet, in 1982, um, a math test, for example, revealed that only 22% of African-American high school seniors, but 58% of white classmates were numerated enough for such firms to consider hiring them. And in reading, 47% of whites in 1992, but just 18% of African Americans could handle the printed word well enough to be enabled in a modern automobile plant. Warning and Levy found a clear impact on income. Okay, so not years spent in school, but strong skills made for high long term earnings. So, the widening skill gap. Why is there such a glaring racial gap in levels of education attainment? It's not easy to say the gap in itself is very bad news, but even more alarming, alarming is that it has been widening in recent years. In 1971, the average African-American 17-year-old could read no better than the typical white child who was six years younger. The racial gap in math in 1973 was 4.3 years in science, and it was 4.7 years in 1970. But the late 1980s, however, the picture was notably brighter. Black students in the fourth 
black students in the final years of high school were only 2.5 years behind whites in both reading and math and 2.1 years behind on tests of writing skills. Okay. And, and that the trends of those years continued by today, black pupils would be performing about as well as their white classmates. Instead, black progress came to a halt and a serious backsliding began. Between 1988 and 1994, the racial gap in reading grew from 2.5 to 3.9. Between 1990 to 1994, the racial gap in math increased from 2.5 to 3.4. In both science and writing, the racial gap has widened by a full year. Okay, There's no obvious explanation for this alarming turnaround. The early games doubtless had... Much to do with growth of the black middle class, but the black middle class did not s suddenly begin to shrink in the late 1980s. The poverty rate was not dropping significantly when educational progress was occurring, nor was it the increase when the racial gap begun. The huge rise in um, the steady and steep decline in proportion of black children growing up with two, parent two parents do not explain the fluctuating educational performance of African-American children. It is well established that children raised in single families do less well in schools than others, even when all other variables, including income, are controlled. I do not agree with statistics of saying um, single-parent homes, I reiterate, and I go back to that, is established in research that children raised in single-family homes do less well in school than others. That is not true. Whether it's a single-parent home or two-parent home it has nothing to do with the learning of our child, the education of our child. So it just shows us the ideas and concepts that I'm going over and how researchers and people that feel that they can view people of color, how they perceive them as um, from their household size, their earnings, um, and all of these things, these factors, to make it sound like our children are not capable of gaining an education, not capable of reading, not capable to keep up with their white classmates. That is not true. African-Americans can be just as intelligent and creative as a white um, child or an Asian child. We're not going to put demographics in on. Demographics and age and household size into educating a child. It's about reading, teaching, learning, tutoring, and working with our children and not pushing our children away and putting them into a demographic, putting them into a statistic. We will never put our children into a statistic where researchers and individuals feel that they could put these children in this web and figure that, okay, they're African-American, so they're incapable and they cannot, and we're going to go by their zip code because they're from this zip code, so they're not capable. Yes, they can. They are capable, and they can read, and they can comprehend. Every child needs an extra push. Every child needs someone that they can look up to, a mentor, or someone that they can connect with. That what makes the child stronger to enrich the education. So not perceive them as a black child, white child, Asian child, but as a child that's learning. A child, whether they're white, black, Asian, or whatever, Latino American, or whatever. A child that's growing and learning and understanding. Not just with their teachers. The teaching should go beyond the classroom. I can never stress it enough. Um, on the weekends, weeknights, a mentor, a tutor, 
more that you give your children, the better and stronger they shall be. Okay? So we're not going to put it on demographics. By all means, household size or none of that. That is a statistic. And none of us is a statistic. Some would argue that the initial educational gains were the result of increasingly racial integration and the growth of such federal um, compensatory educational programs as Head Start. But neither desegregation nor uh, compensatory education seems to have increased the cognitive skills of the black children exposed to them. And in any case, the racial mix is the typical school has not changed in recent years. And the number of students in uh, compensatory programs and the dollars spent on them have kept going on. So it has not stopped and it's going to continue. What about the changes in the curriculum, the patterns of courses selection by students? The education reform movement that began in the late 1970s did secede in pushing students into a new basic core curriculum that included more English, science, math, and social study courses, which I believe is phenomenal. I cannot stress enough giving the children more education, more resources to continue to keep the mind and brain stimulated. And there is a good reason to believe that taking Tougher courses contributed to the temporary rise in the black test scores. The more challenging you make it for your child, the more how interesting it would be. And you can see the growth and the potential of excelling. But the explanation too nicely fits that fact that for the period before the 1980s, not only very different pictures thereafter, the number of black students going through new basic courses did not decline after 1988 during the down of the NAEP scores, okay? So we're left with three tentative suggestions. Suggestions. First, increased violence and disorder of inner city lives that came with the introduction of crack cocaine and the drug-related gang wars in the mid-1980s most likely had something to do with the rehearsal and the reverse of a black educational progress and the streets and within the schools affects learning inside and outside the classroom. So let's protect our children from the danger and the violence right in our inner city. In addition, an educational culture that is increasingly turning teachers into guides who help children explore whatever interests they may have and affected black academic performance as well. We want to continue to give our children the proper resources they need and continue to work alongside our children and never turn our back on our children when we figure they have a struggle with something or a question. We want to be used as a resource to give them guidance and protection. So guys, let's protect, let's continue to work with our children and give them the things that they stand in need of. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it gives you some closure and understanding of the direction we're going in today.